Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. David Chow. I direct the Center for Asian American Christianity, and I have the pleasure of hosting a conversation today with Dr. Catherine Jin Lum. Hi, Catherine. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I am delighted to host you and to have a conversation about your book titled Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. A really quick introduction here. Dr. Catherine Jin Lum is an associate professor of religious studies at Stanford University. And Catherine, I'd like to begin these conversations by just painting some of the context of your personal journey and intellectual mm -hmm. journey that fed into how you conceived of this book project. What led you to write a book titled Heathen? <laughs> okay, what led me to write a book titled Heathen? I mean, okay, I guess there's, there's a personal side to this and then there's an academic side to it and they are obviously related. Good. Um, but from a personal standpoint, I guess you could say that I, was led to write this book because I grew up in a conservative religious tradition where I essentially believed that I came from a heathen people, right? So I am, I don't know if this is video or just audio, but I am um, uh, the daughter of immigrants from Hong Kong and China. And um, so I grew up in the US, but I, um, I always believed that you know, relatives and ancestors in China who had not had the opportunity to hear the gospel were heathens who were going to hell. Um, and for me, that led to kind of a double-pronged response. You know, on the one hand, it was like, wow, I'm so lucky or, or blessed or so, you know, like, um, what did I do to deserve this? And I always grew up believing like, well, I didn't do anything to deserve it. It's grace that, you know, brought me to um, the faith. And, um, but then on the other hand, I felt very guilty knowing that there were relatives and ancestors in my family that did not have that blessing, right? And I wondered, you know, what I was supposed to do about that. And then I wondered about you know, the fairness of that. Like there were just such broad parts of the world where people did not have access to the gospel. And I, you know, grew up thinking that, um, that it was my responsibility to go out and, and help those people, right? So I write in the book that um, childhood me was, or it like, yeah, kind of a primary source for historian me because I was grappling <laughs> with all of these, these issues. But then I say in the book too, that actually adult me is still a primary source for historian me because I continue to, to grapple with these kinds of questions and these kinds of issues. And I think, you know, one of the reason why, I, one of the reasons why I went into history and to the academic study of these questions was to try to find out, you know, what people have said about them historically. Um, the tradition that I grew up in did not ordain women. You know, women are not in positions of leadership. I, I think if I had grown up in a different position, maybe I would have gone to seminary, um, but that wasn't, that wasn't an option for me um, growing up. So this is the path that I found myself on. And um, I guess more directly in terms of like the academic background that led me to write a book called Heathen, uh, when I was an undergrad, so this goes all the way back to, you know, 20 something years ago, um, I was writing a senior thesis on missions in Gold Rush era California. So missions to the Euro-American population and the Chinese immigrant population. 
And um, I was just struck by the constant use of the term heathen to refer to the Chinese. And I was especially struck by how the term heathen seemed to stick to the Chinese, even after, you know, individuals had converted to Christianity. Uh, missionaries might still refer to them as like a heathen convert, for instance. Um, by contrast, the Euro-American population, like missionaries were constantly bemoaning, you know, how much they'd fallen from Christianity, like what terrible things they were doing out in California. Um, and yet they still got the word Christian attached to them, right? But it would be like dead Christians. So I think I titled my thesis something like dead Christians and heathen converts, like, ooh, you know. Um, and, and I was just interested in, in what the relationship was between these religious categories and racial categories. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, you could say that the deep roots of this, academically speaking, trace back to that project and trying to understand that question. That's so cool, linking uh, your current research interests to an intellectual journey dating from college. Uh, I, I, when I was talking to Helen Jin Kim, who's a friend of the center and, and we had a podcast, she, she, say, she stated something similar as well. Um, your, your previous book was titled Damned Nation, <laughs> yes. Hell in America from the Revolution to Reconstruction. And I apologize if there's this um, car alarm in the background. So there's something going on. Oh, I can't hear it. That's good. That's good. I, you have arresting titles. I, I really <laughs> like your titles and the, the, book, the book covers are, are really evocative as well. Can you share a little bit of the through line, if there is one, from your first your earlier book, Damned Nation, Hell in America, from the Revolution to Reconstruction yeah. to Heathen, Religion and Race in American History. What, what yeah. is the point of connection there? Yeah, so first let me just say that in terms of the title, I should give all credit to um, a couple colleagues, Shazad Bashir and Sylvester Johnson, who read the final version of the manuscript, and I originally had like a much more academic kind of wordy title, and they were like, no, you need to just title this Heathen and get, you know, Heathen on the front cover and the spine, and that's, that's what the book is about, like claim it. Um, so thank you to them. Um, the through line between the first book and the second book, From Hell to the Heathen, I think, um, yeah, in some ways, I think this book is actually a kind of sequel to the first book. So the first book is about the idea of hell in America from the revolution to reconstruction. Um, it tells a more, I would say, like national story. It's about why the idea of hell, um, and I mean that kind of geographically, like it's, you know, about the continental United States um, and why the idea of hell persisted in this first century of nationhood when other scholars have written about hell in Europe, for instance, declining, you know, as a result of the enlightenment. So what is it about that idea that has been so powerful in America? Um, as part of that research, I mean, the heathen are part of that story because if you think about who is bound for hell, um, or who, you know, 19th century Americans would have thought were bound for hell. Uh, many of those people were heathen, right? Um, quote unquote heathen. So that's, that was a part of the story, but it wasn't the primary part of the first book. And for the second book, I, you know, again, tracing back to my earlier research, I wanted to tell that broader story about this category of the heathen, who and what it encompassed. Um, and, you know, it still connects to these questions of salvation. And, you know, like I was saying with my own personal background growing up, these questions about the fairness of um, the quote unquote heathen being damned, right? And yes, yeah, so yeah, sorry, go ahead. The, these are 
extremely theologically rich categories that you're writing history from. Yes. And as a trained theologian, I love it. <laughs> I, love, <laughs> I love the theological and religious motifs that kind of help analyze and frame the subject matter that you're investigating. Mm -hmm. I think that's really gripping. And it's um, a real testimony to your interdisciplinary uh, efforts and interests. So that's, that's just a, a comment as a, as a theology. No, thank you. I mean, I wish I were more interdisciplinary in that regard. Um, I always tell people, you know, I am, I'm approaching this as a historian, which means that I am not trying to evaluate like truth claims, right? Which I think people often read this and want this to do that. Um, or they want it to say something normative. And I tell them like, no, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. I'm not trying to say anything about like Christianity intrinsically. I'm trying to look at how humans have enacted and practiced these truth claims, right? Like, I think that's my role as a historian, but I really appreciate talking about it with trained theologians, you know, ethicists and thinking about, okay, well, what, what then are the implications of this? Um, so yeah, thanks. For the aspiring and budding uh, writers in the audience listening to this podcast, can you, and before we get into the substance and the yeah. argument of your yeah. book, can you say a little bit about what was the easiest or most enjoyable parts of the book <laughs> to write? And, and at the same time, what yeah. were the hardest parts of the book to write? Oh, gosh, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, the book is about like a pretty heavy subject. So I don't know that any of it was like easy per se, but I would say that the circumstances or the surroundings of writing make certain parts of it or made certain parts of it easier to write. Um, so the first chapter that I drafted, which is the chapter on Chinese exclusion, um, I was actually at the Huntington uh, in Southern California, um, which is just gorgeous. It's my favorite, you know, favorite archive, favorite one of my favorite places to be. And I was basically spending the mornings there doing research. And then I would spend the afternoons, like take my laptop outside um, and write in the gardens. And so this is a chapter on Chinese exclusion. I wrote a lot of it at the tea house at the Chinese garden. I was going to so, ask you about that. I've been to the Huntington many times. Yes. That's yeah. A, looking out it, over the water, you know, it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. beautiful. And I, you know, I have to say that that just made the writing like flow. Yes. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the hardest, like, again, the book deals with a lot of kind of difficult things to write about, um, mm. but it was so much harder when the pandemic um, yeah. hit, you know, just for so many reasons, right? Um, for one thing, because I just saw so many resonances, so many echoes with what I was writing about, um, particularly with, you know, anti-Asian hate, um, I ended up writing a little postscript. I can't remember what I called I it. The very an end epilogue. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, about that, because I just felt like, you know, I can't, I can't put this book out there and not acknowledge this context, you know, it's, it's still there. And it was, it just felt so much like nothing had changed. Um, and it was really, you know, it was really hard to, to write that. And also just the conditions of writing in the pandemic. Um, I am very glad that I had done like, basically almost all of the research before that happened. You know, I have grad students who the pandemic has really set them back because it's been really difficult to get research done. Um, so I, you know, I can't say anything about that, but writing during the pandemic with two small kids at home, 
you know, doing Zoom school, um, a toddler. <laughs> that was so, that was so difficult. So if there's like incoherence in the book, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it was written at like 2 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Oh goodness. Yes. Scrapping by as best as you can. Well, let's let's pivot and get into the substance of the book. Could you help lay out the main arguments and sub-arguments? What what are you trying to say in this book? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's a lot going on in the book. I recognize that it's kind of a big book. So let me just try to like boil this down as much as I can. Um, I guess the central question that the book tries to answer is how does religious othering, right? This religious category of difference, the heathen, how does that relate to racial othering? Um, and then what happens to the figure of the heathen with the rise of, you know, racial science or, you know, pseudoscience? Um, and then the argument, the answer that I try to give to that question is that race in this country, race operates um, as a heathen inheritance. And that actually was, that's the title of the intro right now. And that was what I had wanted to title the book, but that was a little bit too in the weeds. Um, but the argument there, so the a heathen inheritance, that comes from um, a passage in the Bible that 19th century missionaries really loved, um, which comes from um, this book of Psalms. Now I don't have it off the top of my head, but um, I'll give you the heathen as, as your inheritance. And missionaries took that basically as a reason to go out and inherit the quote unquote heathen world. Um, so maybe it would be helpful if I try to like lay out what this, what I, what I set my argument up against. Um, and so that is, I call it the replacement narrative. And it's a story about the relationship between religion and race that essentially says that racial difference replaced rate, religious othering. Um, and that story goes that uh, the religious figure of the heathen is a um, is a changeable figure, right? So the the key characteristic of the heathen is that the heathen has wrong religion, but wrong religion can be converted away, right? The heathen can be baptized. So a number of scholars have looked at that and they've said, well, because the heathen can be converted and baptized and turned into a Christian, that is not a fully racial like figure, right? That's a religious figure, but it's not a racial figure. And so they've defined race in terms of that which is innate, you know, inherent. It's often understood to be um, physiological, right? It's obviously, it's the socially constructed meanings attached to that. Um, that's why I said, you know, it's pseudoscience, but race is understood to be rooted in the body, something that cannot be changed away. And so a number of scholars have tried to find, you know, what is the what is the moment when religious othering gave way to racial othering? So in the book, I'm, I'm not trying to look for a moment when one gave way to the other. Um, I you know, absolutely acknowledge like, you know, racial science, pseudoscience, that is extremely important. You know, the ways in which um, people see race, they read race onto the body, the ways in which racial hierarchies are constructed based on supposed differences between bodies. Um, that's very important, but that's not the only way that race works. So that's that's what I'm trying to show here is that race can also work through an understanding of the other as changeable, as somebody who needs to be changed. And here I'm drawing on Sylvester Johnson's definition of race in um, his book, African-American Religions, 1500 to 2000, um, Colonialism, Democracy and Freedom. In that book, he defines race as the division of the world into a kind of binary of European and non-European, the colonizer and the colonized, the governor and the governed. 
And that's really, I think, where the figure of the heathen is essential in creating this kind of binary. Right? The figure of the heathen gives a justification for the European and the Euro-American to go out and say, we're going to govern you because you cannot govern yourselves. Um, sometimes they'll attach a yet to that, right? So there's this idea that you will eventually be able to govern yourselves. You'll eventually be able to learn. We are here to be your teachers, your governors, to change you, to save you. But you're always going to be behind us, right? Because we have had this, you know, quote unquote, light for longer than you have. Um, and so, yeah, so the figure of the heathen provides a kind of justification for going into the world and doing all manner of things in the name of saving and changing the heathen. And I argue that that is a racial dynamic and that's a dynamic that remains with us to this day. Interesting. So I'm not a historian. Yeah, so no. <laughs> I'm always thinking, I'm always sort of, I'm curious and interested in the history itself, but I'm yeah. always also translating the historical arguments into their contemporary significance mm -hmm. because there's so much now in terms of race conversation we talk i'm at i'm at an institution that values racial justice yeah uh, there's a cottage industry in the corporate world and institutional life now for diversity equity and inclusion this is all framed in terms of race there's political cultural debate cultural war debates around critical race theory mm -hmm. what i hear catherine saying is yes this category of race of of kind of color is very important but it's also always been intermingled with religious mm -hmm. characteristics that seem to be absent in the larger public discourse that's kind of the, where yes. I hear you going with this. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, because race does not only work through, um, how do I put this? Sorry, this is like me being the academic. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, race is not just about skin color. Right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not at all the only scholar to have said this. Like there's scholars of, you know, language, for instance, who've looked at how race manifests in language. Um, I think everybody in their own disciplines, like I am in religious studies, I'm a historian. So yes, I'm arguing for the importance of religion. Um, but I do, I, I do think that that's been largely overlooked uh, in the discourse. And I, I see that even in the classes that I teach here at Stanford. So I'm affiliated with the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. And I teach courses here on religion and race. And students who come into those courses you know, they often come out of the Center for Comparative Studies and Race and Ethnicity. They're you know, doing majors or minors in that. They are so well-versed um, in, you know, critical race and ethnic studies, but they have not thought about religion, like, at all. And so they come into this class and they're like, whoa, <laughs> you know, this is, it's, it's a surprise to them. And so I really, I mean, this book, in many ways, also emerges from that experience of teaching. You know, I didn't really mention that before, but. Why, why do you think that is? Why is it that our students are so well-versed in critical race theory, and they're surprised to hear from you that religion is a really significant contributor to racial othering. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple reasons for that. I think I think the replacement narrative that I talked about earlier, and again, I should say like, okay, or I should say that is has nothing to do with the replacement theory that has been in the news lately with the, you know, terrible, um, Buffalo shooting. This is not about the replacement theory. Um, but I think that replacement narrative that 
race supplants religious othering, um, at least in Western context, I think that has actually been really powerful mm. in the academy as well, right? Like in you know particular disciplines like race, gender, class, those are the three you know categories that everybody talks about and religion just isn't. And I think part of that is that there is this kind of assumption that religion is something that belongs to the less than rational past or it belongs mm. to you know not the West. Um, Henry Goldschmidt and Elizabeth McAllister make this claim in their book on, um, it's an edited volume on race, race, nation, and religion in the Americas. And they say that, you know, in the West, oftentimes we tend to think of our original sin as racism. And we think of the original sin of societies outside the West as religious fanaticism, right? And so it's this way of like um, relegating religion to that which is has not caught up right um and i think yeah so i think that's one of the reasons why like religion is just not um it's not as studied outside of religious studies or outside of you know historians of religion um sociologists of religion like obviously there, there are people who focus on religion within their disciplines but outside of that not so much and then in secondary schools and primary schools also i think that's part of the issue too is that there's um there's a concern with how to teach religion yeah. in this country in public yes. schools. Yes. You know, how to teach about religion rather than teaching religion like to proselytize. Like there's this concern that um, parents are going to get upset or a teacher's going to cross the line or whatever. And I think what that manifests in is people just not talking about it. Right. You know, so then they'll learn about it at home or at church, maybe, or their religious um, affiliation, but not at school. Right. Um, I think your explanation of the replacement narrative, how racial othering replaces the concept of religious othering, that's extremely helpful. I have the table of contents in front of me and I, I wanna just walk through the three parts. So part one is titled, Imagining the Heathen World. Right. Part two is the body politic. And part three is inheritance, inheritances. Can you walk us through the, the narrative your, your book offers? Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So how do I like play out that argument in yep. the structure of the book? Yeah, yeah. Um, so basically the first part of the book looks at the like capaciousness of the category of heathen. Mm. And um, it asks how this concept of the heathen I mean, this is a question that I had like way back as an undergrad is, you know, how can this category incorporate people from like so many different parts of the world under the same heading? Um, so the first part of the book really kind of asks that question and it particularly asks that question in a context when um, racial science, you know, biological racism is on the rise. So missionaries and others who continue to use the concept of the heathen are actually defending it, like aware of the rise of racial science. And so racial science is all about like parsing difference, you know, measuring difference, like supposedly measuring skull sizes, et cetera. Um, but the heathen is like this blunt, kind of, I call it kind of a broad umbrella that just sweeps everyone under this um, broad category. So the first part looks at how heathenness was supposed to manifest in the histories, the landscapes and the bodies of people characterized as heathen. So it was never just about wrong belief. It was about how that belief was supposed to manifest um, in heathen societies. 
Um, and then the second part, the body politic, um, looks at how the very constitution of like what America was supposed to be, um, particularly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, was defined against this notion of the heathen world. Um, so that chapter looks at Chinese exclusion, it looks at Hawaiian annexation, uh, it looks at attempts to figure out, you know, what, what characterizes the quote-unquote American? And the answer is not the heathen, right? So Chinese heathens are excluded. Um, and then you might ask, you know, then why Hawaiian annexation? Um, obviously, there are, you know, reasons other than religious for both Chinese exclusion and Hawaiian annexation. But the argument there is that Hawaiians um, are supposedly heathens who need the oversight of Americans to help govern themselves, right? So again, this is like that heathen justification at play. Um, this part, the body politic also looks at uses of the concept of the heathen um, in you know, the continental United States itself. Um, so there's a chapter called the barometer, and that is about how the figure of the heathen can be used as a means to also critique the hypocrisy of white Americans who claim to be Christians who are or who are Christianizing the heathen, but are actually behaving like heathens themselves, um, particularly around um, the treatment of African Americans, um, the treatment of Native Americans, uh, et cetera. And then the last part of the book, Inheritances, um, is really about the continued resonances of the concept of the heathen well into the 20th century, even into the 21st century. So even though the term heathen has largely fallen out of use, um, except when it's used for like neo-heathens or neo-pagans, um, I argue that it's just been replaced by synonyms um, that are more you know, socially acceptable, but essentially say the same thing. So in you know, religious discourse, you might hear terms like the 1040 window, unreached people, frontier people. Um, those are all synonyms for the heathen, the heathen world. Um, in, you know, outside of like missions and humanitarian organizations, you might hear terms like um, third world, developing world, right? Those are other terms that I, I argue come out of this idea of the heathen world. That's fantastic. That's super helpful. I have a number of kind of, you've, you've prodded some questions on my side. So let's keep in this space a little bit, looking at the three-part structure of your argument. So here's kind of a history nerd question in terms yeah. of method or subfields of, of history. So there's a sense in which your project in Heathen is a history of the concept of Heathen yes. and how it's how it means, how it is embodied and the politics therein. So it's, part of me was thinking, oh, this sounds like an intellectual history, a history of how this concept has been used. But then many times, depending on like intellectual histories could be just purely conceptual. That is not what this mm -hmm. is because it's looking at the material instantiation of the concept and meaning of heathen and its political and kind of material cashing out. So what type of disciplines yeah. in the field of history are you drawing upon to kind of prosecute mm -hmm. your argument? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, yeah, in some ways, this is intellectual history. Um, just like my first book was also an intellectual history of the idea of hell. Um, but I guess, because you're right, it's, it's not 
it's not old school intellectual history. Like I think a lot of newer intellectual histories do exactly what you say, right? They, they take into account social and material realities. Um, but I guess I would say like, I mean, this is religious history, right? Like if that's, you know, can be understood to be a sub-discipline. Um, and I mean that not just in the sense that it is history that looks at a religious subject, but it also tries to draw on arguments, questions, um, debates in the field of religious studies. So it is, it tries to be interdisciplinary in that regard. That's good, that's helpful. So um, here's kind of a clarification question. So yeah. we're talking about um, religious othering and how it's durable. It, it, it is not replaced by racial othering. Mm -hmm. Heathen is a religious term. Here's kind of my, my question. We are presupposing Christianity as the particular religion that is at work here, right? So mm -hmm. why, it's kind of like, why stick with the general term religion? Why not just call it Christian othering? Like, cause we're talking about yeah. Christianity and heathen and mission and missional frameworks and the biblical, the scriptural references are to the, the Hebrew Bible or Christian scriptures, right? So why not just name it Christian? Are they interchangeable in your work or is there a distinction at play here? That is such a good question. Yeah, I mean, this is about Christian othering, right? As Christianity is the religion in the American context that has had, you know, the deepest influence, I would say, on this kind of racial, religio-racial othering that I've been talking about. And Christianity has um, shaped the, you know, figure of the white savior that this book also describes. Um, so yeah, I, I could have called this heathen, Christianity and race in American history. Um, but it is also about the category of religion, right? So because the, the field of religious studies and the ways in which the category of religion um, is understood is, I mean, this is kind of getting into weeds also, but, um, <laughs> but a number of scholars have, have discussed how the very category of religion itself comes out of this kind of colonial framework where European Christian colonizers are going out into the world and applying the label of religion to those practices that they believe most um, parallel their own, right? That most look like their own. So they'll give the name religion to something that has, uh, you know, a sense of like sacred space that looks like their own, um, that has you know, religious leaders who look like their own. Um, so again, like the, I mean, this comes from um, a classic article by Jay-Z Smith, um, religion, religions, religious, which is about, the, you know, the category of religion as a colonial term, right? Um, so I think that's, you know, that's one of the, the key reasons why I use the term religion here. Um, in addition to Christianity, right? I'm not trying to shy away from using Christianity either. Um, but yeah, that also, you know, the rise of like so-called world religions discourse is itself a kind of story about the category of heathen being broken into all of these other, you know, um, terms that Euro-Americans and Europeans are becoming increasingly aware of. It's so Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, all of these arise from this category of the heathen. Thanks, Catherine. If you 
there someone's mowing their yard outside of my window. So I, I apologize if uh, if there's some distracting background noise. Oh no, no, I, I I can't hear it. And I, by saying that, I don't mean to say that. Obviously, like in you know Buddhist tradition, like Buddhism does not arise from heathenism. But I'm just saying that in the American and the European contexts, world religions is this like broad category that you know initially there's Christian, Jew, Muslim, heathen. And then over time, that heathen category, you know, proliferates into many other things. As I was uh, skimming the parts of your book in preparation for a conversation, I think later in the book, you talk about um, count counter scripts. Yes. So there are certain disciplining scripts that are, I don't know how to call this, that, that kind of uh, center white American Protestantism as normative mm -hmm. and how the category heathen is used to uh, put in place those who are not white right. American Protestants. Right. right. And then I think you address this, but I, I also just want to ask it, what happens to non-white, non-European folk who convert to Christianity, right? So. Yeah. So yes. this could be Black Christians, this could yep. be Latinx Christians, uh, Asian American Christians, I'm thinking in our contemporary context. And your story, your opening personal narrative indicated, oh, your, your family's from Hong Kong, um, you yourself and your parts of your family uh, have become part of this Christian faith, have adopted it and make, mm -hmm. made it your own. What happens when non-European, non-white, with a Protestants adopt the Christian faith, mm -hmm. even convert into the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. How does this affect your analysis of the concept mm -hmm. heathen? Yeah, no, this is this is part of my story. This is why I said like I'm still a primary source um, because I see so many people grappling with this. Right, I'm I'm hardly the only one who's grappled with this question of like, what about ancestors? You know, what about um, yeah. It, so I guess first I should say that the, the idea of counterscripts that comes from Natalia Molina's work on um, how race is made in America. Um, and yeah, I, I really want to be clear in the book and um, you know, in our conversation that there are, there are treatments of Christian converts that um, there are scholarly treatments of Christian converts that tend to see them as kind of co-opted. Right. And that's not at all what I want to do with this story. Um, and that's why I think that laying out the counterscripts, laying out the alternative possibilities is really important. And so I try to lay out kind of a spectrum of ways in which um, Christians from communities of color have engaged with this concept of the heathen. Um, one of those ways is to actually embrace the term for themselves. So this is from people who've rejected Christianity. Um, Wang Chin Fu is uh, one of the characters in the book um, who is kind of a self-styled Confucian missionary in the late, late 19th century. He converts to Christianity initially and then comes to the United States, you know, encounters the rampant hypocrisy in, you know, late 19th century America and ends up rejecting Christianity and going around and preaching like a Confucian um, gospel. And, um, and then embracing the term heathen for himself. And so one of the ways in which 
the term heathen has actually proven to be a source of empowerment for people of color is um, that they've kind of embraced the all-encompassing nature of the term and, and its successors, so like third world also. Um, so, you know, like third world has become a, um, a term under which, uh, you know, uh, people of color have kind of united and, and said, you know, we are like members of um, these nations that have historically been seen as um, third world developing heathen, whatever, but that is a source of strength that brings us together. Right. And that that actually kind of solidarity you see not just among people who've rejected Christianity, but also people who've accepted Christianity. Um, so in the book, I, I write about the Ecumenical Association of Third World Theologians who really unite under this banner of the third world and kind of explicitly say, like, yes, like we should, um, you know, find solidarity in our common experiences of oppression and of you know, alternates to Christianity, like these are important, these matter, and we should not reject them, um, but affirm them, you know, essentially. Um, so that's another kind of way of engaging with this, this category. And then still another one I kind of mentioned briefly earlier, um, the barometer. So using heathenness as a way to call out white hypocrisy um, and Christians of color and, Christ, or, and people of color who've rejected Christianity both use this kind of heathen barometer, as I put it, to say, basically to identify practices that look heathen in white Christian America, which is a really effective way of getting at like the core anxieties <laughs> that, are, that are at play in white Christian America, you know, to say, actually, you are worshiping idols too. You don't, you just don't recognize it, right? So your idols are white supremacy, guns, um, you know, money, uh, et cetera. Um, you are also devastating your landscapes, right? Like look at climate change, for instance. You know, there are all of these ways in which what white Christians pointed to the heathen world and said, you're behind, you're backwards, can be flipped back onto white America as well. Um, so that's another kind of counterscript that I try to play up in the book. Interesting, interesting. What, so, we've spent a lot of time getting into the the arc of your argument and the tributaries within that arc and I want to step back a little bit and just think about the significance of your work for like non-historians maybe even for Christian theologians maybe for um, religious people of color so you you mentioned early on that the concept of heathen is very capacious, mm -hmm. somewhat even malleable. And my reading of the term based on what I've, our, our conversation today is, it's in part because it's doing a lot of political social work in organizing yes. groups of people. Yes. And so it's, it's elasticity and wide semantic range and usage, its utility yeah. is in part a function of the politics that it's serving in circumscribing yeah. what is America, right? Yes. So there, there's a sense in which if we presuppose America as a Christian nation of European descent, which is code for white, then it very simply serves as, hey, this is this heathen is, as you, I'm just repeating you now, is everything not American. Um, and so there seems to be huge contemporary implications mm -hmm. regarding all of our discourse re regarding Christian nationalism in the United States uh, in yeah. which your work would bear, bear upon. So may maybe just a comment there about Christian nationalism, 
um, yeah. in a contemporary discourse and how you see your work uh, situated in that context would be great. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, I mean, there's so many resonances there. Um, I guess, let's see, where should I start with that? I mean, I was just reading about the um, Patriot Front. Is that what it's called? Mm. There's so many of these awful white nationalist right-wing groups. Um, this is the one that was, you know, the guys found in the U-Haul, um, the mm. back of the U-Haul in, I guess it was Idaho. Um, but I was just reading an article about them and about how they are motivated by the idea that America belongs to the ancestors, you, you know, European Americans, right? It belongs to European Americans because they were the ones who built the nation, who founded the nation. Um, and it's, you know, it's very much this kind of like Christian nation, white Christian national discourse. Um, replacement theory, which has also been all over the news, again, not replacement narrative, but replacement theory that motivated the Buffalo shooter, for instance, um, that also connects to this notion of, you know, keeping the heathens out, right? So, I mean, in particular, I think you can see real resonances there with Chinese exclusion and the kinds of language that was used in the late 19th century about America as a white Christian nation that needs to basically police its boundaries through the exclusion of dangerous heathens. Um, so again, like now we're not necessarily using the terminology of heathenist, but all of the things that, all of the baggage that attaches to that term, that's still there. And that's really like one of the key things that the book tries to argue is that heathenist has never just been about wrong belief, you know, in the ways in which it's been enacted in this country. It's been attached to all sorts of things like dirtiness, disease, um, an inability to take care of the land, um, a lack of history, right? Stagnation, a lack of development. It's like all of these things have attached themselves to this capacious category. And it serves to like, yeah, it's, it's you know, it serves to say like, here are the things that we need to keep out of America, right? To preserve the nation's integrity as white and Christian and progressive. And I mean, progressive here, not in the like politically progressive sense of the term, but progressive in the sense that white Christians have long prided themselves on being like a techno technological, um, forward moving people, right, who are charging through history and changing the world, um, and heathens are not. So, white Christian nationalism, and there's all this, um, the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of light being shined on the January 6th yeah. capital insurrection and its affiliation with these white Christian nationalist groups. So this really paints Christianity in a, in a certain way, yeah. a not good way. Right. I think, and then, but to kind of look at Christianity from maybe an, a subaltern perspective or a sort of a minority perspective, there's another story to be told. It could be a counterscript. I, I welcome mm -hmm. your thoughts here. I'm thinking of the, so here's some statistics. In 2012-13, Pew uh, published a report. I think it's a mosaic, uh, a mosaic of faith. It's about Asian Americans and their religious uh, faith and identity. And the statistic, almost a decade ago now, was out of Asian America, and I think it's anywhere 21 to 22 million total Asians in America today. 42 percent of them are Christian. Mm -hmm. so let me repeat that. 42% of Asian America is some almost co-equal combination of Protestant and Catholic. Of the Catholics, a large number are Filipino. Of the Protestants, you get 
a whole hodgepodge. That is not insignificant. That is mm -hmm. a very, very significant number of previously considered heathen people right. who have yeah. themselves embraced the Christian religion, mm -hmm. presumably for positive or even, mm -hmm. dare I say, liberative ends. Yeah, so I, I wonder, like, what are your thoughts about, about that particular data point? Because yeah. like, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is Christianity put to mm -hmm bad ends yes but there seems to be a malleability to christianity yes. to be put to good ends absolutely do you yeah. think i'm overstating it like what no what no not at all not at all and i think you know that's why like i say i'm a historian and i again i look at how people put religious claims christian claims into action some in really heinous ways and some in ways that are like you say liberative you know supportive of social justice um i Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's a hugely important statistic. And I think that what you see um, in that statistic is actually a kind of clear-eyed adoption of Christianity by people in communities that were previously considered heathen, a clear-eyed adoption of it as not what it has been co-opted to be by white Christians, right? Um, and in, in fact, a way of seeing white Christianity as itself needing the help, I guess you would say, of Christians of color to um, set it back aright, I guess. You know, and here I'm thinking of the work of like Rebecca Kim, um, The Spirit Moves West, this kind of reverse missionizing process where um, Christians from communities historically considered heathen have, I mean, they've used, it's the heathen barometer that I spoke about. You know, they see like actually like America, Europe, you know, these, these are nations that need Christianization. They've, um, they've strayed, right? Like, and we are the ones who can actually bring it back to them because we see what it's really about, right? So I think, yeah, that's, that's a really powerful counterscript. So interesting. Well, there's, um, I want to give you the last word and we're kind of uh, winding down the podcast interview here. What, what are the major takeaway points you hope your audience to gain from reading your work and your audience being both scholars of the, uh, the history of Christianity in the U S but also let's say the lay, the lay person, whether mm -hmm. they were, whether they are heathen or not. And I use that in scare quotes. <laughs> what, what, are, what are some of the takeaways for your audience? The key takeaways. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've been kind of like rambling through them, but maybe if I were to try, try to condense them a little bit, the continued importance of um, religion, of Christianity in this country specifically to processes of racialization, of racial othering. Um, you know, just as with students in my class, I hope people who read this book after reading it can never say again, well, race is just about skin color and has nothing to do with religion, right? So the importance of religion to that. And then to think about why that matters. I guess that's, for me, that's what's really key. Um, again, I'm not an ethicist, I'm not a theologian, but I think that the history here, I hope that it raises the kinds of questions that you just asked me. And I hope that readers, you know, whether academics or otherwise, take those questions and talk about them with each other, talk about them with their, you know, religious leaders or figures that they turn to, you know, just ask these questions and think about them and think about what the implications are of this history not being over, 
right? Because I think that's, you know, it's another key claim of the book. Um, when I was talking about COVID and writing about the, the early stages of the pandemic and how it seemed like nothing had changed, you know, I think we need to know this history to know how to change, I guess. Hmm. Hmm. On that note, Catherine, I just want to thank you for spending uh, your, your time with me talking about your work. I hope you and I can stay in conversation and I hope that the um, audience of the Center for Asian American Christianity podcast will go out and take a look at your book. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for the great questions. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.